Hello and welcome to the Road to Adapex series by Energy Voice, brought to you by Adapex 2023, the world's largest energy exhibition and conference. Given the connections between Adapex and the plans for COP, which is going to be held in Dubai in the first half of December, it felt only right to conclude our Road to Adapex series with a look ahead. I'm Ed Reed. I'm an editor at Energy Voice, and I'm joined by Ben Carhill, Senior Fellow at the Centre for Strategic and International Studies, and Charlotte Wolfby, Chief Sustainability Officer at Petras. Today, we're going to take a look at the interplay between energy, technology and sustainability, essentially following that path from ADAPEC to COP. There are going to be some big needs coming to the fore as the world comes together in Dubai. Delegates are going to need to keep their eyes focused on what needs to be tackled in climate change, but also find a way through how to pay for it, how to deliver on a variety of fronts at the same time, and how to do so while tackling the persistent challenge of unequal energy access. First, we're going to hear from Charlotte about some of Petronas' plans. So, Charlotte, obviously a lot of uh, interest in the uh, the uh, energy transition at the moment. What, is, what does Malaysia need to accelerate its energy transition plans? Well, if you put Malaysia into context, it sits in, in the region of, of ASEAN, the 10 ASEAN nations here in Southeast Asia. And it is a growing region, probably the fastest growing region in the world right now. Uh, in the next few decades, it will be the third largest uh, workforce in the world, the fourth largest economy in the world, and people are moving into the middle classes. And this will put a lot of pressure on resources, but also the expected um, sort of average or annual energy demand is about to grow up 3% a year. So a real challenge is how do you decouple uh, economic growth from emissions growth? So that's sort of the, the context for Malaysia. But I would say that Malaysia um, sits in a quite good position. Uh, the World Economic Forum recently launched, launched this energy transition index, and Malaysia has earned a 35th spot on this worldwide rankings, a very respectable uh, position. And uh, I would also say that the Malaysian government has uh, announced a number of different policies in, in support of both this Paris ambitions Paris Agreement ambitions, but also energy ambitions. And, and it really is putting energy, the sort of the transformation of the energy system as a, as a growth engine for the future. And most recently, uh, the government launched, launched the National Energy Transition Roadmap with 10 catalyst projects. So this is really interesting. So you have like sort of 10 lighthouse projects to develop and drive new, the development of new value chains in the energy sector. So I think they're very strong fundamentals, but what does need to happen next for the country to succeed in this? And I think like just like any other country, we now need sector pathways, regulation that's uh, conducive and supportive as you're developing new value chains. And But also we need greater regional cooperation, especially if we want to benefit from enormous growth in renewables. Here in Malaysia, the wind doesn't blow very much. Um, in Thailand, you have a lot of sunshine. Vietnam have a lot of wind. We have a bit of hydropower in Malaysia. So perhaps the region would benefit from more integrated energy uh, approaches. And, and, and on the softer side, I would say that to succeed, it's so, so critical that we constantly develop skills and capacity and capability, both on the government side, but also the private sector side. So this is technical expertise, uh, techno-commercial, regulatory uh, skills, and so on. So 
as we are evolving our value chains, we really need to be acutely aware of what are the skills we need, because that might actually be a, a, an impediment for us to to meet the ambitious targets that we have. And it, it feels like Petronas has, has, has sort of uh, embraced CCS, obviously part, a part to play in the energy transition. To, to what extent do you think this has a part to um, for, for, the, for the company's future? So CCS has been on the agenda for quite some time. And indeed, CCS firmly sits in our strategy and our plans going forward. We have a net zero carbon emission by 2050 pathway that we've announced, and CCS is absolutely critical to, to the delivery of, towards uh, that ambition and, and target, if you like. Uh, CCS, we have a specific project called the Kasavari project, which is one of these catalyst projects, part of Malaysia government national energy transition roadmap. And when this uh, project comes into operation, it will probably be one of the biggest TCS projects out there. So over 3 million tons per annum. So this is a, a critical area for us. But at the same time, we have many other CCS projects in the pipeline here in Malaysia. And over time, we also hope to be able to offer CCS as a service for other high emitting sectors. Fantastic. I, I think, you know, obviously financing is, is one of the kind of the big challenges around the, the energy transitions, working out some commerciality and things. When, when we're thinking about decarbonizing parts of the world that uh, lack access to, uh, to, to power, how, how, how do you think we should, we should tackle that sort of financing question? I think it's a very good question because um, we hear about all these uh, estimates from through various scenarios X trillion amounts of dollars need to be invested for us to achieve our uh, climate ambitions and energy transition goals. Of course, that needs to be unlocked. I think what we're seeing now is that finance might not be so supportive, despite all the, the pledges made by, by the asset managers, banking industry, and so on. And, and certainly what would be really critical is that the energy transition aspect is considered. Right now, we see strong commitment towards investing into the green. But how do you get from the brown, if you like, to the green? That needs a transition too. So how do you actually fund and finance the transition? And here, there is, uh, I think, a lot more work needs to be done. I am quite hopeful, though, because I feel that there's more pragmatism now in, in, uh, in dialogue and discourse globally. But it really would mean that Financial regulators, as they develop taxonomies, they need to be cognizant of what a transition means, but also needs to reflect that every country has its unique circumstances. So whilst we all are aiming for the 2050 net zero carbon emission goal, uh, there will be different ways of getting there and every country will be unique. So how do you reflect that in a, in a, in sort of a framework? I think that's very critical, but I feel that now. Now there's more, a better understanding that a blanket approach from sort of brown to green is not going to, a binary approach won't work here to unlock that amount of money that's required for new, new infrastructure. And I think, I suppose, you know, obviously we're sort of, uh, we're on the verge of, of going to COP. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's starting and, and obviously kind of crucially it feels this year in, in the United Arab Emirates. I suspect that kind of discussion around um, those kind of financing questions and, and, and sort of tackling the uh, you know, other parts of the world and, and, and sort of that decarbonisation question is going to be quite high up on the list. But what's on your wish list for, uh, for, for COP? So I'm hugely op optimistic. I'm hugely optimistic before every COP because whilst the, 
whilst the doomsday sayers are very busy just before COPs uh, to say that it's not going to bring the desired results, let's not forget it. The COP, uh, the COPs are growing year for year. It creates an enormous amount of momentum. And of course, I think the negotiated outcomes, we kind of have them to, to a broad extent. We, we know the direction of travel. That's very clear. We also know that we're not doing enough, but COP does galvanize and, and, and bring together tens of thousands of people who, who all have the same objective, which is about driving down emissions, protecting nature and bringing greater equity through all of these investments that have to be made. So, so what am I kind of most hopeful about? I, I do feel that there's greater pragmatism now across sort of global dialogues. Uh, we need less pledges and high ambitions. Now it's about the real economy actors coming together, really looking at how can we unlock value chains? What are the real stumbling blocks and, and how can we open up new opportunities and drive accelerated action and scale it up? So, so I think if we will have different people perhaps around the table, but it's now about real pragmatic solutions. So I'm hugely hopeful for, for COP and I, I think it will deliver, uh, especially now that the COP28 presidency has promised it to be the most inclusive COP yet. And it's, it's really inspirational, actually, that youth, uh, indigenous people, business cities, all will have a seat at the table. And I think it's really critical to bring in the, the next generation's voices. It's their future. Let's have them in there. But also the heavy emitting industries. Most of the man-made emissions come from, from industry. Clearly, industry needs to change, and that means they also need to have a seat at the table and hear these different voices and, and work together on the, on the pragmatic solutions. This is what COP28 presidency has promised us all. I'm sure it will deliver to some extent. So I'm hopeful on the sort of eve of the eve of COP as we are here today. Fantastic. Well, Charlotte, listen, thanks so much for, for taking the time to talk to me. That's been really great. Next, we're going to catch up with Ben from CSIS about the US and some of those hopes for NOCs in the Middle East. Ben, the Inflation Reduction Act feels like it's been a, a revolutionary uh, kind of a moment for, for, for the US and for the wider world. To what extent do you think it's catalyzing change? Well, the Inflation Reduction Act was a big deal. Um, if you pair that with two other federal climate bills, it's, this is the largest ever federal climate action in, in US history. And the Inflation Reduction Act offers something for everyone, both producers and consumers. Um, it's basically a form of support for every type of lower carbon energy. Wind energy, both onshore and offshore, onshore solar, battery storage, carbon capture and storage, hydrogen, you name it, there's something for it in the Inflation Reduction Act. And also there are a lot of benefits for consumers, big tax incentives for electric vehicle adoption, for building rooftop solar systems and so on. And so it has catalyzed a lot of investment. And the Biden administration estimates that it's been something like $110 billion of announced investments in lower carbon energy since the IRA passed in August 2022. And it basically offers a long pathway, 10 years of, of, of big tax incentives for companies to come and invest in these technologies. And that's been a pretty powerful signal. In fact, I think there's a concern in Europe and in Northeast Asia and elsewhere that the tax benefits are so big from the IRA that it's sucking up capital and um, they feel a need to compete. What we have seen in the United States, though, is that implementation of the IRA has been tough. The fact is that we won't realize a lot of the promise of these investments unless we can add these renewable energy sources to the grid and approve projects much faster. And that's been a headache in the United States 
Uh, there's been a lot of focus on so-called permitting reform or ways to just get these energy projects approved faster. And it's proven to be pretty challenging. So there are definitely a lot of growing pains. And the fact that we've had higher interest rates and higher borrowing costs for renewable energy has been a big barrier too. I think one, you know, one of the kind of interesting points, as you say, has been there was a, there's an incredible expansion, hasn't there, in, in sort of, I suppose, in terms of companies looking at the US, you know, from right around the world, looking at those projects. But I think over the last kind of couple of months, it feels like we've sort of maybe started seeing some problems emerge, particularly in sort of offshore wind. Is it actually more complicated than perhaps we thought to kind of execute these big, ambitious projects? Yeah, I keep hearing people say in the energy sector, well, you know, everyone thought this transition was going to be quick and easy. I don't know anyone who thought this transition would be quick and easy, right? (laughs) I mean, we're talking about transformation of global energy systems on a massive scale. We've never done this before, and we have to get moving quickly. That's the whole ethos around the IRA and other big um, uh, climate policies happening around the world. But it has proven difficult. And I think the rise in interest rates has been a big challenge for renewable energy. Um, offshore wind you know, is an area where these challenges are really apparent. Um, there are a bunch of project promoters that agreed to contract terms that they're having trouble meeting now because their borrowing costs have increased so much and they're facing challenges with you know, workforce development, permitting, and just cost inflation across the board. And I think to a lesser extent, that's happening in other other sectors as well. You know, one issue, particularly in the US and Europe, is that you know, adding resources to the grid is tough. Um, we have in the United States what's called an interconnection queue. It's just a big queue of projects waiting to be added to the grid so that that lower carbon energy can be produced where the resources are available and sent across states to where it's needed. And as anyone who's looked at grid issues in the United States knows, this is a complicated issue. So all these things are teething pains and they're going to be with us for some time. Another area where, where, where the US has seen a lot of uh, progress, it feels, has been CCS. And it, and, it, and, and you know, we, were, we were both at Adepec, um, and I think it, it felt like it, it felt like Nearly every announcement at Adepec was about CCS. There was some element of kind of carbon capture in all of those kind of uh, big statements. How do you think we're making progress in terms of that sort of CCS? Obviously, we're kind of starting from a small base. We've got some very ambitious goals. The IEA set some, you know, uh, really ambitious targets. How do you think the U.S. is doing? Um, and, and I suppose, you know, kind of in comparison, the Middle East. How, how do you think these kind of two big centers of energy uh, and, and obviously ambition in terms of sort of, you know, tackling these these energy transition goals that are kind of doing. Carbon capture and storage will be critical to meeting net zero goals. I mean, it's going to be hard to arrive where we need to by 2050 unless we find ways to um, abate and, and manage emissions from existing oil and gas projects um, and help decarbonize operations. And CCS has to be part of the solution. And so if you look globally at CCS ambitions, they are huge I mean, it is far beyond anything that's been done before. And to be frank, the track record of CCS in the oil and gas industry is not great. I mean, a lot of these projects have not achieved carbon capture on the scale they were supposed to. They've been over budget. Outside countries like Norway, there haven't really been a whole lot of success stories. Um, I do think that will change. The fact that so much capital is pouring into the sector and everyone knows that it's going to be a really critical part of abating emissions from fossil fuels means that you know a lot of companies are getting serious about this. And just the scale of announced investment commitments means that it's going to grow and grow. It's not a new technology. I mean, it's a proven technology. The question is really which countries have the geologic reservoirs to handle the carbon capture and which companies can capitalize it. Um, you mentioned the Gulf. You know, I think the Gulf is kind of a natural home for CCS. It's got some favorable reservoirs. It certainly has a lot of oil and gas production where emissions management is needed. Um, and I think increasingly the Gulf National Oil Companies will be stepping up, announcing more CCS projects. And I suppose looking at that kind of that Gulf interest, I mean, I think obviously we, we saw some some big announcements coming out of Adepec about, you know, kind of concrete commitments from, from, from ADNOC, for instance. But 
looking at how we kind of move those projects forward, what do you think it is that 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 uh, we need to see to drive those projects forward in the Middle East? Scale. I think we need big scale. Um, and that's what the Gulf national oil companies in particular can provide. But the difference between the Gulf and other parts of the world is that when these companies and governments take a decision about which projects to prioritize, they can happen pretty quickly. You don't really have a lot of the regulatory red tape and you know other local barriers to, to project development that you have elsewhere. Um, I have to say I've been a little bit surprised by how few CCS announcements have come from the Gulf in the last couple of years, but I do think this is going to change. And, you know, CCS will again be on the agenda at COP28. It is one of those divisive issues between the fossil fuel industry and um, you know, a lot of environmental groups who see you know, scaling up CCS as a way to extend the pathway of fossil fuels over the longer term. But I think anyone who takes a hard look at 2050 net zero goals realizes that it just has to be part of the solution. Uh, I suppose, you know, CCS, as you say, is is a kind of a big, uh, it's a big kind of ambitious game, isn't it? And, it? and it feels maybe the sort of, you know, looking at thinking about sort of nearer term wins and, and obviously, I suppose, you know, also sort of thinking ahead to kind of, you know, cop, thinking about sort of methane emissions, right? And we, we, we've heard talk about making progress on this. Do you think that we're moving fast enough? I mean, obviously, there are various ways in which we can tackle the kind of the methane challenge. But do you think we're moving fast enough? Have you seen the sort of encouraging signs? There are a lot of encouraging signs. There's a lot of dialogue about methane. The awareness has grown really rapidly, but we're not moving fast enough. Methane has really shot up the international climate agenda since 2021, which is when the Global Methane Pledge was announced. That's a collective agreement around the world to cut methane emissions by 30% by the year 2030. It's now firmly at the center of international climate negotiations. And a lot of companies have stepped up, especially the Western um, majors and some of the large independents that are publicly listed. You know, their investors and shareholders have really been pressing these companies for clear targets on methane reductions, not just over the long term, but in the near term as well. And we are going to have a wealth of data on methane emissions coming from satellites, aerial surveys, drones continuous monitoring systems, uh, you name it. So we're moving toward a world in the very near term, several years from now, where the, this data will be publicly available and every large company needs to have a plan for what to do about it and how to cut its methane emissions. The encouraging thing that I've seen in the last year or so is that this dialogue is really shifting away from something just between investors and Western majors towards a lot of the national oil companies and big oil and gas producing states as well. And this is where I think that ADNOC can play a special role. The fact that COP28 is being held in the UAE and ADNOC is playing a special role here, ADNOC CEO is, is the COP president, really means that this is an opportunity to rally national oil companies around methane reduction targets, promote cooperation between NOCs and other companies and among NOCs themselves. And I do think that there will be some important announcements made at the COP conference on methane. A lot of the important technical work will continue, but the good news is that there are a lot of people willing to roll up their sleeves and help with this challenge because it is really one of the critical ways to slow the pace of global warming with action between now and 2030. I'm, I'm interested because, you know, earlier you, you, you mentioned that the, 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 the impact of higher interest rates on uh, in terms of sort of renewables. I mean, just thinking about, you know, these kind of more, I suppose, more oil and gas projects, sort of CCS, uh, tackling methane emissions. Is there, I wonder, the same impact on these kind of projects as we're seeing in the renewable space? Or is the renewable space, the renewable energy, kind of the offshore winds and things like that, was that really kind of like a... a driven by those kind of zero interest rates. And maybe the oil and gas industry has a slightly different take on things. Well, a lot of those big uh, renewable energy projects, in particular offshore wind, are pretty capital intensive. There's a lot of upfront costs. And so borrowing costs 
um, and interest rate increases really hit them hard. When it comes to some of the lower carbon energy interests of the oil and gas sector, you kind of have to take it on a case-by-case basis. Carbon capture and storage, I see the big challenge not so much as, as cost, as just project execution. Uh, with things like methane abatement we just talked about, you know, this is pretty inexpensive, affordable stuff. And the big scale of things, it's just about making a commitment at the top level of companies to do it. You can do things like replacing pneumatic devices and changing your operational practices and stopping flaring and venting without a huge investment. It's really just a matter of making this a big focus of operations throughout the company. And so, you know, they're relatively quick wins. They're less expensive than some of the bigger ticket items to reduce emissions. And, and listen, you know, we're, we're sort of in this interesting period, aren't we, between Adepec has concluded and we're sort of moving towards, uh, to, towards COP28 as you say it's going to be you know sort of just down the road from Abu Dhabi so and there's a kind of a, there was a clear through line isn't it? I think all year you know people have been talking about Anapec and kind of COP as you know kind of uh, points on the sort of the same line are there anything that you're kind of looking out for at COP I mean you mentioned uh, methane emissions as, as, as one area is, is, is there anything else going on that you think we should uh, be bearing in mind well this COP will be different I mean it's being held in the Gulf um the Gulf states will clearly have a bigger voice here than is typical at the COP conferences. And I think there's also a real desire to give more voice to the global South. You know, there are a lot of concerns about equity, about cost, and these are difficult issues to deal with at, at big climate conferences. The phrase that you often hear in reference to emissions is that countries have common but differentiated responsibilities. And that basically means that the big emitters that have constituted most of emissions over time have a responsibility to act. The fact is, though, decarbonization pathways are not the same around the world. Um, And you still have a lot of developing countries that are struggling with energy access. Um, For them, the priority is not so much decarbonization or cutting emissions. uh, It's increasing energy to populations. And so things like cutting finance for fossil fuel projects are controversial. And frankly, a lot of countries in the global south feel like it's not necessarily their responsibility to get on board with the same climate goals that Europe and the U.S. have. So these have been kind of the some of the divisive, difficult manage difficult to manage themes that we've seen at, at, at COP conferences in the last couple of years. I think this year will be no different. It's still going to be hard to manage. But this is why issues like you know resilience and the so-called loss and damage fund are really important um, because it brings out some of these you know kind of north-south tensions. I don't think that the, the COP presidency of the UAE is going to make it easier to deal with these issues, but it's possible that you'll see more emphasis to the global south perspective. I mean, I think it's it's a really interesting point. I mean, I, I when I was at APEC, I, I spoke to the Ugandan energy minister who, who gave really something like a powerful uh, plea, essentially, for, to, to roll out LPG access, you know, and, and a sort of a move to, 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 you know, kind of clean up cooking and, and obviously that kind of impact on, you know, sort of domestic mortality and things. It's, it's quite interesting, the idea of sort of, I suppose, the, uh, the the Middle East, the the UAE sort of emerging as a sort of a, a financier of a sort of energy transitions in, in various different ways. Do you think that, that there is that kind of appetite that we're seeing in, I mean, not just the UAE, Saudi Arabia, other other places to try and take on some of that sort of burden of, 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 of helping provide energy to those people, you know, the 600 million odd people in sub-Saharan Africa, for instance, who have no access to electricity. Yeah, climate finance is a big challenge. Um, providing capital for clean energy projects around the world is, is a tough thing to do. And I think the Gulf states want to put their money where their mouth is. Um, and they want to step up and be, you know, a source not just of oil and gas exports, but of finance for different energy projects around the world. And we've seen this in recent months with uh, Mastar and, and Mubadala um, investing in some renewable energy projects in, in Egypt and 
other places than Sub-Saharan Africa and Asia. So, you know, it's a bit of a mentality shift. I think people are starting to see the Gulf states as sources of capital and as companies that can get things done pretty quickly and as a way to complement and maybe even catalyze investment from the multilateral development banks and other sources that we think of as kind of the you know, the critical sources of, of clean energy finance. It's still a really big challenge. Um, and I think unlocking capital to support clean energy in the developing world is a really critical challenge that we just don't have great answers for yet. People often talk about climate finance, but we need to find creative ways to de-risk projects and to deal with you know a lot of the above ground risks that investors face in some emerging markets, political risk, um, currency risk, those things. And so bringing in more institutions that can help create bigger pools of capital and, and de-risk those investments and collaborate is really important. And just as a sort of a final kind of a closing question, I mean, obviously, national companies are, you know, kind of key to the, the Middle East, uh, you know, energy as it is now, and, and also the sort of energy transition goals. Are there, are there anything in particular that you, you can sort of, you know, that you would expect to see from these companies moving forward, obviously, with this eye on sort of the transition, and also, I suppose, kind of maintaining their kind of core historic businesses? Yeah, I've just finished a paper called National Oil Companies, Climate Commitments and Methane. So this is very much top of mind for me. Perfect. <laughs> uh, I've been thinking a lot about how pathways for national oil companies are changing with the energy transition. And we see them following different paths. Um, some are doubling down on traditional energy. They feel like the rest of the industry is under-investing. Um, they feel they'll be rewarded for continuing to invest throughout multiple cycles. And they've got larger scale resources and lower carbon intensity barrels that will advantage them over the long term. You know, other countries that have maybe smaller resources and you know mature to declining production they're pushing their energies in a different direction they want to make them more diversified players to invest more in renewable energy so i think states are responding in different ways and they're asking their nocs to respond in different ways um, across the board i think that you know nocs have a lot of work to do to decarbonize operations um, they don't feel the same acute pressure from investors and shareholder resolutions uh, many of them are well capitalized and they can do this they have the resources and the financial wherewithal and you know the kind of management skills to pivot and help decarbonize operations others are really struggling and they're going to be left behind by this long-term transition away from fossil fuels um, and to bring it back to methane you know these are the NOCs that really need help with methane abatement they need technical advice they need support they may need special financial instruments um, to help capitalize in investment projects to cut methane. So we need creative solutions to deal with some of the, the lagging NOCs. But you know, in general, I think NOCs still feel like they have an important role to play for a very long time. And these are critical institutions for national economies. You know, the significance of NOC revenue streams and also their role in broader economic development, you just can't overstate it. Country by country, these are important institutions. Trying to get them to stop investing is not a winning strategy. Instead, you have to think about how to help decarbonize operations and promote cooperation with NOCs uh, to talk to each other and to talk to outsiders to get help and support. Fantastic. I think we're out of time, so we're going to have to stop there. Thank you to our guests today, Charlotte and Ben. I think you've shed some really fascinating light on the scale of the challenge facing the energy industry and some ways we might find through that problem. This is the final episode of Road to Radapex, so thank you for uh, listening along with us. Please do tune in to Energy Voice Out Loud's weekly podcast where we are leading the global energy conversation. You can subscribe to Energy Voice Out Loud wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage your friends and colleagues to tune in. But for today, I've been Ed Reed. Thanks for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector.
Subscribe to Outloud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Outloud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.